Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello again to all of our viewers from all over the planet, dozens of countries and states from Alaska to Florida. This morning, we've been looking at the global, the strategic side of addressing today's theme, health equities. And in that larger picture, we're aware that we're in this race between getting ourselves vaccinated and building out a herd immunity with the growth of new variants who can overcome us if we're not able to move quickly enough in that broader area. One person who's been the voice, uh, voice of reason, voice of science, voice of looking ahead, not sugarcoating, but being very optimistic about where we are moving is Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota, from SINRAP as we call it. Um, Dr. Osterholm has been uh, in the running for sexiest man alive among some people with George Clooney because his voice and his way of bringing us into the global conversation is so compelling. I want to ask Dr. Osterholm to join me here on Zoom. And um, we're, we're, we're a day early. You're always coming out on Thursdays. But if it wouldn't be uh, upsetting <laughs> anybody, would you give us a little brief peek into your message coming tomorrow? Because we're in a, a kind of very active period in the changing nature of this COVID pandemic. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Mark, for having me and congratulations on just an incredible program and all the work that you do. It's a real honor for me to be here with you today. Thank you. Uh, you know, we're in the tale of two cities. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Uh, the best of times based on what you were just talking about with vaccine. I think that the uh, current rollout of the vaccine is going as well as it could go in terms of getting us the number of doses out into the community. Uh, we can surely talk more about how maybe to use those more effectively. But at the same time as you're seeing what's happening in uh, Michigan and Minnesota, places like this, that despite the vaccine rollout as it is, we're still seeing a very rapid increase in the number of cases, a B117 surge as we call it. B117 is the variant that originated last fall in the United Kingdom, which we now know is about uh, 50 to 100% more transmissible than the previous uh, viruses we dealt with. Uh, it produces 50 to 60% more severe illness, and it has basically taken over here in North America as the predominant uh, virus that we see. Based on the experience in Europe and other locations around the world, particularly Europe though, we've seen just how difficult it can be to control this particular strain of the virus. And as uh, many of you know, uh, large parts of Europe have been in lockdown of one form or another uh, since Christmas time trying to deal with this virus as well as in implementing their vaccine programs and it's been a real challenge. Um, and so we anticipate that over the course of the next five to seven weeks, we're gonna see a number of other states showing this big increase because in fact still 45 to 50% of the US population is not yet protected against uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, because of the fact they've not yet been vaccinated and they have not yet had natural disease and developed immunity. What we're seeing is a changing epidemiology a bit. We're seeing less individuals who are, are uh, 
critically ill in the older age population. We've had more vaccine, but today is a good example in Minnesota. We had 14 more deaths where many of those were older individuals. Um, and we also are seeing a situation now, though, where um, 20 to 49-year-olds are the majority of the cases ending up in intensive care, severely ill, uh, more than we've seen in the past. And we're seeing a lot more kids, younger kids, particularly um, under eighth grade, who are now involved in uh, a substantial amount of transmission in our communities is actually occurring as a result of kids transmitting to kids, transmitting to adults. And that's something that we just didn't see nearly as much of prior to the arrival of B117. I know in some of the conversations about equity in particular, there's a concern that uh, low-income families could be more affected, uh, negatively affected, um, with our children going back to school with the passing of this infection, as you just described, kid to kid to parents. Um, is there a way that we could be rapidly altering the procedure or the availability or something to get us faster to something that looks like or could be close to herd immunity? Yeah. Well, at this point, uh, let me just say that uh, your assessment's right on the mark uh, in terms of we are challenged right now to get vaccine to our younger adults in this country, meaning 20 to 49-year-olds. And given that we're seeing such a high increase in cases in this area, this is a real concern. Um, I'm part of a group that put out a plan uh, almost seven weeks ago now that would have ur that urged the U.S. government to consider a single dose of the vaccine now with the deferred dose for anywhere from eight to 10 weeks later. This uh, approach was used quite successfully in England. It's now being used in Canada. Why do I say this? Because we actually have data supporting right now that if I get two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, I surely can get 90% plus protection. But even with one dose of either of those vaccines, within three weeks, I get more than 80% protection against disease. And let's just do the simple math here. One person gets two doses, 90%. One person gets zero, none. That's about a 45% protection, 90 divided by two. If I give two people one dose at 80%, that's 80% protection. And right now, as this virus is moving through our communities, we need that. And so some of us are still continuing uh, to shout loudly that we need to go to a program approach where we give one dose to as many people as possible. And when you hear each day about the number of vaccines being rolled out, that's a great, great piece of news, but it needs a caveat. So when I say 3 million doses were put out there today, people assume that's 3 million new people. It's not. Half of those are people getting their second dose. It's really 1.5 million people who are new vaccinees. And in a country that still has over 13 million individuals, 65 years of age and older, who have had no vaccine at all, where we know there's a much increased risk for serious life-threatening disease, hospitalizations, and death in that group, um, we want to get that out there. So we're still hoping we can do that. Time's running short, though. Right now, we're in a really a major challenge situation of getting vaccine out before this surge really takes over. And we're watching it day by day by day really increase around the country. I notice reports of new variants from Philippines, from India. Um, what, 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 uh, where are we in this race with getting us vaccinated or the variants spinning out of control and putting us back to day one? 
Well, the variants surely are game changers. Uh, there's no question about that. And uh, they really came onto the scene in November. Prior to that time, we knew that the virus was remutating, which causes these variants to develop or strains of the virus, uh, but didn't appreciate that they would have any real impact on any aspect of the virus human illness picture. Well, we learned that there were certain mutations that did do that. The B117 variant that I mentioned from the United Kingdom, as I already said, causes much more severe disease and is much, much more transmissible. There are other variants that actually have a third category of concern, and that is the fact that they can evade the immune protection from either the vaccines or from natural infection and having recovered. Um, and that's a variant uh, area that we're very concerned about. P1 is one of the variants that we've seen there. There's another variant, uh, uh, B135, that we've seen from uh, uh, Af uh, from Southern Africa. And all of those variants are ones where we do have some interference with the vaccine protection. How much is still unclear, uh, what its clinical implications are unclear, but it's also a variant that is, uh, is also spreading around the world. Right now, British Columbia is experiencing a major outbreak here uh, around the community of Whistler, uh, where we've also seen the uh, Vancouver Canucks hockey team has been now out of uh, playing for the past two weeks because of an outbreak of P1 in that group. Uh, so surely we're going to be following this very, very carefully. But I think if there's one message I could bring back, it's exactly why you're here today and why I'm here today. This is a pandemic. It's about the world. And what's really important to understand is, is that right now, about 80% of all the vaccine has been used in just 10 countries in the world, all high-income countries. 30 countries in the world have not even seen a drop of vaccine and probably won't for some time. COVAX, which is the organization put together by the WHO and other groups, including philanthropic organizations, has as a their goal, which is laudable and from a humanitarian standpoint, to get up to 20% of low and middle income country people vaccinated in the next year. That's just not enough. It turns out that ongoing transmission in low and middle income countries, while surely a humanitarian issue, it is a strategic critical safety issue for the world. Why do I say that? Because this is where the variants are now spinning out of. And if we have uncontrolled transmission in the rest of the world, our vaccines are not safe. We don't know what other variants could occur that would threaten the uh, effectiveness of these vaccines. So the one message I want to come back to today, as long as this virus is circulating in the world, everybody in the world's at risk. And I think this is a really important message on, on a day like today with World Health that we realize we need a Manhattan Project together with a Marshall Plan. How are we going to vaccinate the world? We don't have the manufacturing capacity right now. What's it going to take to get it? This is about being penny wise and pound foolish. If we end up losing our vaccines to additional uh, challenges through these mutations and variants, um, you know, where are we? What are we going to do? So uh, I, I can't thank you enough for the chance to be here to say that because this is such an important audience. They understand the critical, critical aspects of world health. Well, I noticed this week at the meetings of the World Bank and IMF, 
There was a discussion of a pretty major new facility that could be part of this. Um, our Treasury Secretary um, Yellen was uh, bringing out the idea of, of more of a global approach to some of the infrastructure and some of the taxation. I do see these conversations, even about a treaty, rising up to higher levels of governments that the message is beginning to get to them. But I was uh, uh, tracking this last week, and I think you might have been too, uh, that gigantic 1,300-foot ship that blocked the Suez Canal because of a big windstorm. <laughs> that was quite world news, but it didn't quite reach the same level of world news that a 1,000-foot ship got stopped in Milwaukee because its crew got COVID. So if, you know, we're talking about little tiny microscopic virus stopping thousand foot ore ships, we are reaching a stage of having enough examples that perhaps it can create the political momentum. Do you see any mm, pressure points or direct, I mean, we're, we're not a state without political savvy and political representation. <laughs> what, what, what advice? Who's, who should did somebody pick up the phone and call? Well, you know, and, and as you framed this so very, very well, this is not a partisan issue. You know, I have served roles now in the last six presidential administrations. Um, with the Trump administration, I served as a science envoy for the State Department on pandemic preparedness around the world. I was on the Biden-Harris Advisory Board transition team for COVID. You know, my job is just to help government, help leaders do what they need to do. And this is one of those examples where this pandemic has really opened up, I think, the eyes of a number of people as to our global vulnerabilities, uh, and particularly around things like uh, manufacturing, trade, uh, shipping. Our group at the at CIDRAP at the University of Minnesota has been very involved looking at critical drug supplies. And we have found that of 153 drugs that are critical drugs that we need every day or people die, what's on the crash cart, what's in the emergency room, what's on the emergency rig. And of those 153 drugs that fit those categories, 100% are made outside the United States and they're all basically generic with very, very thin narrow and very breakable supply chain lines. And so when something happens around the world, whether it's an infectious disease, whatever, that can disrupt that, that's amazing. Our further studies have shown over 80% of the brand name drugs, the ones that are still on patent, are made outside the United States. And in many cases in countries where right now we're concerned about the COVID-19 activity. So I think uh, a number of people are becoming aware of the global nature of health, the global nature of trade, the global nature of how the two intersect with each other and why it's so critical that we really address these together as, as partners in, in both problem and in solution. And so um, I, I couldn't support uh, your comments any more strongly than to say, uh, this is exactly why we need to have these kind of meetings. This is exactly why we need to put this issue forward. It's all about helping all of us. And when you help the world today, you find out, oh, my, that does help me, too. I feel like it's very, very fortunate that SIDRAP sits within the broader University of Minnesota with all the different components, 
you know, the human rights part and the law school and the engineering. And do you find that these uh, silos that sometimes exist that COVID has helped bring you, SIDRAP, to the whole university and the whole university in when it's useful to you and your colleagues? Well, let me uh, slice this into two sections. One is that, you know, for the past 46 years, you know, I've had the good fortune to be involved with a number of rapidly emerging public health issues. I was very involved in the very earliest days of HIV AIDS, where it was Minnesota that was the very first government entity in the world to make HIV a reportable condition. And there were many gay men at the time who were highly concerned about the issues of confidentiality and what might that do to, you know, would they be disclosed somehow, et cetera, all really legitimate concerns. And of course, it didn't happen. And because of our work, we were able to actually really jump on HIV in a much more effective way. So I've seen a lot of the tough times. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, in the last year, the number of death threats I've received, the kind of email I get every day, uh, you know, people who look at this as still a hoax and it's being perpetrated by individuals for their own personal purposes. Just in the last 24 hours, if you were to see my incoming email, um, it'd be hard. And, and so I think that that has by itself added a whole new dimension to how do we deal with global problems. Uh, you know, I find it interesting, uh, you know, so many of us were so concerned about calling it the Chinese virus and how that basically impugned China as such. But today we don't have any problem talking about the UK virus or the South African virus or, you know, wherever. And I think it's really called into question, you know, how do we address these kinds of issues uh, without creating prejudice, but at the same time just being scientifically factual and what we need to know and how to deal with it. So in that regard, it's been an eye-opening experience for all of us in public health to see that kind of uh, rancor and, and division that politically I'd never seen before with a public health issue. In terms of the University of Minnesota, you know, I've been at the U now for 46 years. Even the time I was at the Minnesota Department of Health, I was still on faculty at the university. I can't imagine being in a better place in the world right now for the work we do and the support that we've received and the collaborative efforts across the university. And so while things have surely stepped up some, I'm actually happy to report that the Consortium on Health Law and Values, which uh, has been in place under the leadership of, of Professor Susan Wolf for many years, has been one of the most unique uh, entities in all of higher education in terms of bringing together all the different parties that you just mentioned and more. And we've had a whole series of webinars, uh, major webinars for the world, thousands and thousands of people attending them on these critical uh, political and science interface issues. And so, um, you know, stay tuned if you want more of the University of Minnesota right now is one of the global leaders in providing this very kind of information. The most recent one we had was on uh, racial and health inequality, and it was stunning. It was a stunning example of uh, what the University of Minnesota can do. And so, so I'm very proud to be a Minnesotan. I'm very proud to be a part of the University of Minnesota.
We had the good fortune of having Dr. Tolar this morning and, uh, you know, just, just seeing the, the capacity to touch and reach, but to bring all the pieces of the world together in, in one place. We're just so fortunate yeah. to be here. Now, I uh, can resonate a bit about uh, the hate mail and the difficulty <laughs> of that in my office, but I also know that you occasionally get love letters and really <laughs> sweet letters. And you read on air a beautiful letter about our children and education, and I asked if you could share that with us in the final minutes here. Thank you so much. Well, I, I will do that at your request. Um, this is a uh, communication that I've had ongoing with a school superintendent from the uh, northern part of New York who is, in my mind, the teacher of teacher of teachers. She is, she's a gift. Uh, and she's been described by many of her colleagues in very fascinating ways, as I pointed out before. Uh, she's emerged as an articulate voice of reason in the education level. She's been described as one of the boldest uh, education leaders in the country. And uh, the dean of a major school of education at college once said, uh, and her name is, uh, is Dr. Schneider. Here's, ask Dr. Schneider any question about education and prepare to enjoy a profoundly reflective, creative, passionate, learner-centered, and well-informed conversation. Well, so I've, I reached out to her on the education piece. I have been very pro-kids going back to school from K through 8 uh, because of what it was a relatively low incidence of disease, transmission, et cetera. Now, that's surely changed with the B117 situation because now we see this transmission. So I read on air uh, and included in our, our podcast a letter that uh, Superintendent uh, Teresa Thayer Schneider had shared with the world. And I think uh, it reflects, Mark, what, uh, what you're all about here today. So let me share that letter with you. Dear friends and colleagues, I'm writing today about the children of this pandemic. After a lifetime of working among the young, I feel compelled to address the concerns that are being expressed by so many of my peers about the deficits that children will, will demonstrate when they finally return to school. My goodness, what a disconcerting thing to be concerned about in the face of a pandemic which is affecting millions of people around the world. It speaks to one of my biggest fears for children when they return. In our determination to catch them up, I fear that we will lose who they are and what they have learned during this unprecedented era. What on earth are we trying to catch them up on? The models no longer apply. The benchmarks are no longer valid. The trend analyses have been interrupted. We must not forget that those arbitrary measures were established by people, not ordained by God. We can make those invalid measures as obsolete as a crank-up phone. They simply do not apply. When the children return to school, they will have returned with a new history that we will need to help them identify and make sense of. When children return to school, we will need to listen to them. Let their stories be told. They have endured a year that has no parallel in modern times. There is no assessment that applies to who they are or what they have learned. Remember, their brains did not go into hibernation during this year. Their brains may not have been focused on traditional school material, but they did not stop either. Their brains may have been focused on where the next meal is coming from, or how to care for a younger sibling, or how to deal with the missing grandma, or how it feels to have to surrender a beloved pet, or how to deal with death. Our job is to welcome them back and help them write that history. 
I sincerely plead with my colleagues to surrender the artificial constructs that measure achievement and greet the children where they are, not where we think they should be. Greet them with art supplies and writing materials and music and dance and so many other avenues to help them express what has happened to them in their lives during this horrific year. Greet them with stories and books that will help them make sense of an upside-down world. They missed you. They did not miss the test prep. They did not miss the worksheets. They did not miss the reading groups. They did not miss the homework. They missed you. Resist the pressure from who, whatever powers that to be who are in a hurry to fix kids and make them up and make up for lost time. The time was not lost. It was invested in surviving an historic period of time in their lives, in our lives. The children do not need to be fixed. They are not broken. They need to be heard. They need to be given as many tools as we can provide them to nurture resilience and to help them adjust to a post-pandemic world. Being a teacher is an essential connection between what is and what can be. Please let what can be demonstrate that our children have so much to share about the world they live in and in helping them make sense of what, for all of us, has been unimaginable. Please, this will help them and us achieve a lot more than can be measured by any assessment tool ever devised. Peace to all who work with the children. Teresa Thayer Schneider. Thank you for letting me read that. Dr. Osselholm, thank you for being our bridge to the future. Thank you for every Thursday being <laughs> on that podcast and for all our viewers, go to SIDRAP, go to that podcast. But also thank you for being as clear and as focused and remembering on what it will take us to get to the other side and what it will take so we don't forget when we get there like it was described in the letter, we will have been changed. We won't go back, but building forward better won't just mean better arrangements. It'll also mean a better understanding of who we are, this human family that for the first time in history, probably all experienced something that interconnected us. Thank you again for being with us today. And I look forward to Thank you. tomorrow's podcast. Goodbye now. I'm honored. Thank you.